Well, I think Matt and I may have been reading some of the same material this week. Feels like it's going to fall off of there. The uh, questions that were asked of the moms, as Matt said, a thousand or so that were uh, surveyed. Don't you worry, I'll get my act together here. There we go. <laughs> no, don't I wish. <laughs> yeah, nice try, Jill. Those questions that were asked, the source that I was reading, spike during meal times. Girls aged four are the most curious, asking an incredible 390 questions per day. On the other end of the spectrum, boys aged nine ask the least amount of questions. And according to the survey, the moms claimed that these were the top five questions asked. Why is water wet? Where does the sky end? What are shadows made of? Why is the sky blue? And how do fish breathe under water? There was a yearly salary survey done by an organization called salary.com. This is wonderful. It attempts to put a salary on the work of American mothers. Now, first, they broke down the motherly duties into, fall, into to 10 categories. Daycare center teacher, CEO, psychologist, cook, housekeeper, laundry machine operator, computer operator, facilities manager, janitor, and van driver. Then they studied how many hours moms work in these categories and what the family would have to pay for outsourcing that duty. Moms, you who are uh, you know, working at home, working double duty, you're going to love this. According to the 2014 survey, they determined the following. Stay-at-home moms worked 96.5 hours on household and child care duties in 2014. If paid 40 hours plus 56.5 hours of overtime, moms, you would earn $118,905. Now... Working moms, yeah, it doesn't sound like enough, does it? Working moms spent 59.4 hours per week on the job in addition to their work outside of the home. So if you pay them for 40 hours plus 9.4 hours of overtime, working moms would earn 70000 plus in addition to the paycheck that they really do bring home from outside. Happy Mother's Day to all moms. But you know, I I have to be honest, I love, and I've said this before, I'll probably say it every year around Mother's Day, I I love Mother's Day because it it honors those who pour themselves into the lives of their children and people. Granted, not all moms do the best job, but I'm convinced that, that most moms do the best job that they can, given what their resources and their background may be. But I think maybe even more importantly, Mother's Day calls attention to women. And Matt alluded to that. And at Appwood Community Church, I want to go on record as saying that we want to honor women. We want to honor all women. We want to honor them as full equals with full rights at the table of life with men. It is a place that they deserve by virtue of their being created in the image of God, they are precious to him. But sadly, 
Too often that place is denied to many women because of the men in their lives and or the patriarchal culture in which they live. And so at Applewood Community Church, we want to be a place that affirms women as equals with men. They are bearers of God's image as fully as their male counterparts. They are gifts to be esteemed and not exploited. They are human beings to be respected, not sold and used like property. And may we be a people, my brothers and sisters at Applewood Community Church, who stand for the protection and the affirmation of women. All ages. Unborn women to elderly women. And in every place, even if it means inconvenience and hardship to us for doing that. May it be so. Thanks be to God for the gift that women are in our lives. You know, in our text this morning, Peter introduces a topic that may cause us to, uh, to chafe a little bit. And, and in our text for next Sunday, he uses it again related to wives and husbands. It's a word that women have been subjected to for centuries in a multitude of ways. It's a word that we already sang once in a song. Blessed submission. What's so blessed about that, right? It's a 10 letter word that many think of as a four-letter word, and for good reason. But as we have done in each of our Sundays so far in this series in First Peter, we need to see everything that Peter is saying through the lens of what he started the letter off with. Remember these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Wow. To Peter's way of thinking, and hopefully to ours, this changes everything. Everything, our perspective on life in a broken world will be different because God's people are those who live with hope in this world. They have a a living hope, Peter describes it as, as, as a result of being birthed into the family of God. And though we live in a fallen world, it is filled with pain. It is all full of all kinds of hard stuff. We have been given a status that Peter believes should fill God's people with great hope in order to live holy lives because, and this is a theme of his that we see surfaced throughout the letter, because our souls are secure. That soul, though all hell would endeavor to shake, That soul that we sang about, that's the one that Peter's interested in. The soul of every human being and every person who entrusts themselves into the hands of God 
based upon the grace of His Son, Jesus Christ, their soul is secure. And remember, Peter talks about that as being the goal of our faith in chapter 1. Soul comes up again and again. And we'll see it in this morning's text as well. And throughout this letter, Peter communicates a message where this, I've said this and it sounds a little bit crass, but I just can't get away from this sense that Peter has of, you know, if your soul's secure, then it really doesn't matter what happens to the body because it's not going to last anyway. That's probably a crass way of saying it. But you just can't read this letter from Peter and not come away with that sense that Peter is really keen on this living hope and this inheritance that God has planned for us and is saving for us. And so we live as God's people. And all that that entails in a hard and broken world, which may bring hardship and brokenness to us as well, and there's just this overriding sense of, oh well, our souls are secure. And I think that plays into, an understanding of that I think plays into our, our grasping onto what he drives at in, in our text this morning. Come what may. As a result of living for Christ in this world, nothing changes the fact that we are secure for all eternity. And remember, don't forget, his, his image of the stones, the living stones, yes, individuals, but joined together, making this holy house that is solid and unmovable in our commitment to the truth and our commitment to the declaration of God's glory. There is strength in numbers You know, we understand that when it comes to team sports. But as followers of Jesus, we just don't get it. There is strength in numbers. As the temple stood for the presence of God in the old world, God's people in Christ now stand as God's presence in the world, standing strong together through the trials of life in order to call attention to our amazing God and the truth of what he has done for us and what he can do for others as well. So as we prepare to to read our text this morning, let me remind you that last Sunday we stopped our reading of Peter's letter at those amazing descriptions. Wow, here's who we are. Chosen people, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that we will declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's the reason that we exist as the people of God on planet Earth. We exist to declare his praises, both in word and in our lives. And then Peter says this, once you were not a people, in other words, once you were nothing in comparison to kingdom values, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now, Peter says, you have received mercy. So, with those words in our heads, let's stand and read what comes next. Here we go. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love your fellow believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because you are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. My brothers and my sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> well, there is, there is much here. And as always, we can't cover it all. We'll hit the highlights. My hope is, is that you are continuing in your own journey of reading through Peter uh, in the course of each week. Read through Peter. Read through this text again. Uh, seek the Spirit's enlightenment and, and teaching and counsel of the truth regarding uh, some of these, these incredible statements. So, Don, can we put that next slide up? Here's some amazing words. I, I took two statements and I, I linked them together. I, I left out the piece about, you know, what good is it or what credit is to you if you, if you take a beating for doing something stupid. For it is commendable, commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because you are conscious of God. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So here's what I want you to ask your neighbor. When you read these words, what is your reaction? How does it make you feel? Go ahead, be honest. You're among friends. All right? Talk to your neighbor for just a minute. What's your reaction when you read these words? What are those feelings that kind of bubble up? Okay, we ready? Man, I wish I had some kind of a meter that measures the energy in this place. Because it just shot up. Wow. So, what do you think? What, what did you express, or what did you hear your neighbor express? How do you respond to a statement like this? 
What are, and, and maybe some of the feelings that, that are associated with that. And I won't call you a liar if you say something that, you know, most of us think you probably don't feel. So maybe our perception of unjust needs some clarifying. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's legit. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. But, but unjust in the sense of, you know, how do you feel, how do you respond when you, you, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. I don't deserve this. You know, you, you really think it through and, and, and it feels very legit. I'm being wronged. What, what's your response? It's not fair. My kids always used to say that when they were little. And I would say to them, who told you life was fair? They didn't appreciate it then. They still don't appreciate it. Yeah. Did you hear, duh, from heaven? <laughs> oh, I like that a lot. So you, it's, it's, there's a challenge in there to sort of lift us to a more godly perspective. It's all our fault, right? <laughs> Did you hear that comment? Can you all hear? It's inherent that injustice is present in the world. So much good that came out of that suffering to a certain, to a certain degree. Yeah. Can't tell you gas. Frames it, frames it differently. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do think <clears throat> that there's persecution involved because of what's going on in the culture and the date. But you're absolutely right. That's the jump that we need to make or we need to deal with, and we'll get to that at the end, I think. How do we... How do we think in terms of or prepare in terms of the unjust suffering or the persecution that may come to us as God's people? You know, and, and I'm not here this morning to be some prophet of bad news, but, but, but who amongst us doesn't sometimes decry the, 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 the situation of our country in which we live? <clears throat> You've heard me say before, and forgive me if it's offensive, we live under the illusion that this is a Christian nation. We wonder why things aren't so Christian. But that's a discussion for a, a, another time. I think, I think your responses really, they, they, they grab a lot of what goes on in our hearts when, when, we, when we read these words. It's significant that Peter follows those lofty descriptions that we heard last week. The reminder that we have received mercy, and before we hadn't had mercy, but now that we have received mercy, the first words that we read are about being a people who are aliens and strangers in the world and a caution to abstain from sinful desires that war against our soul. Now, it's interesting if you, you take that sentence apart a little bit because it's, it's in the living of our daily lives that we demonstrate or not, I think, the reality of our soul's condition in terms of what others see. Do I live my life in a way that, that they they see in me a, a confidence and a certainty that doesn't come from me, but that comes from God as my Father and my knowledge that my life is in His hands regardless of what happens. Do they see that in my life? Do they see that in your life? When Peter refers to sinful desires, it's more than just you know, the, the sins of my youth, sex, drugs, and rock and roll that he has in mind. It's, it's thinking about self. It's self-preservation, it's self-exaltation, and it's self-satisfaction, it's self-comfort. It's all about self. That is at the heart of the sin nature. Those are the inclinations that characterize the sin nature, I think, in the lives of people more clearly than anything else. And Peter states, live such good lives among the pagans. Well, now, there's a word. But he's using that word to distinguish clearly 
between those who are God's people and those who are not, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And there was some of that accusation that was going on in parts of the Roman Empire. Peter's saying, in other words, God's people are not going to be understood because their values are of the kingdom. And if they're living out those values, those will show themselves in many, many positive ways. But there will still be those for whom those are challenging and threatening values. Because they're at odds with the value system of the culture in which we live predominantly. When you live your life for the glory of God versus the emperor or the king or the president or the American dream, people are not necessarily going to understand that. And for some, they're going to be threatened. Peter's saying, no matter how others respond to your life as a follower of Jesus is not within your control. However, live in such a way that might contribute someday to a person's repentance. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That's kind of a cloaked statement of repentance. Pagans don't glorify God. And so Peter's talking about a change that has come as a result of the way God's people are living their lives. The word that he uses there has a root meaning of being attractive. Live in such a way that if the Spirit of God begins to do the work of grace in the lives of others around you, they will find your life attractive because it's pointing out to them what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now there's evidence that we find in early manuscripts from the first century that, uh, and second century that, that Christians were suspected and, and even accused of being rebellious against the Roman Empire. It's one of the reasons why they were an easy scapegoat for the fire of Rome. Nero blamed it on them. And that fire, by the way, was happening or may have already happened right around the time that this letter was sent to these believers who are, who are scattered around the Roman Empire. They were a minority, and they were misunderstood because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. They did not pledge absolute allegiance to the emperor, to Caesar, and to Rome, and thus they were seen by some as a threat. Now, in addition, here's what's interesting, because so much of this passage deals with how slaves are supposed to respond to both just and unjust treatment, there's a good likelihood that many of these people who were receiving this letter or who were, who were hearing this letter that had been sent out to them, maybe even the majority of them could have been slaves. Good possibility. And life in the empire, the Roman Empire, was made possible because of an enormous slave population. Some estimates put the percentage of slaves in the Roman Empire in the first and second centuries between 30 and 40% of the population. And some put the slave population in Rome itself at about 500,000, and probably half of those were owned by only 600 men called the members of the Senate. Can you imagine what would happen with the insurrection of the slaves in Rome? You see the picture here? Peter's writing to people who are living in 
an increasingly hostile environment. They're not understood. And he is encouraging them to, to further spread the gospel by putting up, by putting up with, submitting to unfair and unjust treatment. And I don't think this is an argument from silence for the advocating of slavery, as some critics want to say that it is. Well, Peter's endorsing slavery. Not at all. Peter was advocating for the advance of the gospel in a culture where the majority of believers were slaves. And as he's saying, and, and he's saying that, that submission to authority and the endurance of unjust treatment, when it is done for the sake of God's glory and the advance of the gospel, can be a really good thing. A higher priority than personal comfort. A higher priority than personal advancement. Why? Why? Because the soul of the believer which is what is really important according to Peter, the soul is secure. For it is commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because you are conscious of God. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And then, Peter says something pretty outrageous to our ears. To this you were called. To this you, we, God's people, are called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And my response to that is, really, Peter? Really? We're expected to respond to harsh and unjust treatment in the same way that Jesus did? Yes, says Peter. That is one of the things that will identify us as followers of Jesus. And then he goes on to illustrate, as we heard, How Jesus lived that out. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. Peter loves to quote from Isaiah. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's his word again. Your soul is secure. Peter is reminding these believers of the great good that was accomplished because Jesus was willing to face persecution, to to bear incredible injustice in his life. And like Jesus, when we're willing to face persecution if it comes and and bear unjust treatment for whatever reason, there can be incredible good that comes from it because we're demonstrating our heart's desire to entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. It's difficult because we live in a nation, and I say that in, in, in in a blessed sense, that that is founded on the idea of justice for all. Our Father is the same Father in whom Jesus placed His trust. Are we willing to do the same? You know, there's an interesting document that we think dates back to about the 2nd century, early early 100s, 120, somewhere in that vicinity, to maybe mid-100s, 150s. In one section, it's called called the Epistle to, to Diognetus. 
In one section, the author describes how Christians are alike and different from others. Listen to these words in relationship to what Peter has described as living as aliens and foreigners. The difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. Christians do not live in separate cities of their own, speak any special dialect, nor practice any eccentric way of life. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, that each one's lot has determined. And they conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing, diet, and other habits. Nevertheless, the organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable and even surprising. For instance, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior there is more like transients. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in the heavens. They obey the prescribed laws, but in their own private lives, they transcend the laws. They show love to all people, and all people persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering death, they are quickened unto life. They are poor, yet they make many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer stripes as evil doers. So is one observation of Christians in the early second century. You know, I wonder, would that be said of God's people today? In some countries, perhaps. I think one of the greatest challenges that we face is living in a land of tremendous freedom and personal rights. What a blessing it has been for us. But we are also, I think, facing the reality that that those blessings may be going away. And the question that we must answer is how are we going to live as the people of God in a society that may be moving more and more toward being like Roman society? So let me offer some personal reflections on this as we we close this morning. Again, these are just my thoughts. These are are my my prayer, my commitment. I I share them with you because I think they're they're grounded in the truth of Scripture. And and I I offer them as as ways to, to be a people who ultimately demonstrate that we are entrusting ourselves to Him who judges justly because we live the keen awareness that our souls are secure. And I also want to think this stuff through ahead of time because I know that in the heat of the moment, I will blow it badly. That's just what I do. And so my first suggestion is that we as God's people ought to expect unjust treatment. And we ought to expect persecution as a follower of Jesus. And that's not because we have to go out and say and do stupid things. It's because of the reality of the spiritual warfare that Scripture clearly paints the picture of. Jesus was hated by the powers of darkness. Why do we think that those same powers would like us who claim His name and follow Him? And so, I think that it's, it's reasonable for us to, to expect unjust treatment and persecution as followers of Jesus. 
Scripture is pretty clear that it will happen. God never promises His people that they will be exempt from unjust treatment. We have been blessed for decades. We have been exempt, but, but now there could be some changes in the cultural tide. We need to expect things to be different. Are there things that we can do? Absolutely there are. That leads to my second suggestion, that we pray. What a novel idea, that God's people would pray. You know, he often uses or chooses to, to use the lives of his people in the changing process. And so, so our prayers need to be a willing submission to our Heavenly Father that, that He use us in the process of perhaps stepping into the midst of unjust circumstances and treatment for the sake of others. You know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of advocacy for self. Because I do that pretty naturally. But I am a huge fan of advocacy for others. And the reason that I want to be able to do that and to say that confidently is because my soul is secure. But I want to advocate for those who I don't know if their souls are secure. So, So we pray, knowing that our God is the one who changes the hearts of people both those perhaps who are the oppressors and those who are the oppressed. And I'm pretty convinced that that good changes will not come through those who claim to be Christ's followers but are lacking His humility and His character. There is much that is proclaimed in the name of Jesus in the kingdom of God today that smacks of great pride, great power, and lacks gentleness and grace, and humility. That is not of the kingdom of God. I would also caution, if I can say it that way, that the changes that our Father brings about (laughs) may not be what we have in mind. In fact, count on it. Again, we are a people who are called to entrust ourselves to Him who, who judges justly. And and here's just a related, I'll throw this in for what it's worth, and for this you can just really shoot me. I think we need to be very, very cautious in our use of the political process that we are entitled to as citizens of this country. Be very careful in the use of the political process to change situations and people that negatively impact our lives. Let's use it to God's glory to bring change for the way that it impacts others whose lives are effective negatively. But again, I, I often, often sense that there is great sense of self in the use of political process. I'm just saying, we need to be cautious of that. Because the message that it sends is that potentially we are not any different than anyone else in terms of our self-interests. Forgive me if that's offensive. Third, and last, no, actually there's a fourth, but that's a quick one. Third, we must be cautious in our speech. We must be. 
so, so desperately cautious in our speech. When Peter says to honor all people, he means all people. And and when Peter says to honor all people, there's a good likelihood that you and I don't know all people. But we can speak about all people to others. And our speech can demonstrate great honor or great dishonor. We dare not we dare not expect pagans, that's Peter's word, we dare not expect pagans to adhere to godly standards and values. Why should they? They're pagans. And 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 then they get and, and then we get mad and we express ourselves in anger to those who aren't living according to godly values. They're pagans. Is that clear? Why should they live according to godly standards? I wouldn't be, but for the grace of God that has changed me. And that is true for all of us. We can't expect them to live according to godly standards because we say so. And when we introduce godly standards into the conversation, may it be done again with much grace and great, great humility. When Peter says, honor the king, he's talking about Nero. Nero was a nasty, brutal, perverted, sick man. Talk about dishonoring people in the way we speak. Nero was a horrible human being. But Nero was also created in the image of God. And Nero, more than likely, went to a Christless Peter says, honor the man who is making life for many of you a living hell. I think the language that we use of people reveals our honor or lack of it to those who are both in authority in large ways and in small ways and that just maybe kind of prod our lives and make things uncomfortable. And fourth, and finally, Don't do this alone. Just don't do this alone. Why on earth, when God has put us into this family and has attached us as living stones to stand for his presence, his humble presence in the world, why on earth would we face difficult situations and unjust treatment alone? The only reason I can think of, well, there's a couple. One, we're Americans and we do things on our own. Except for team sports, you know, we, we get that. And, and maybe the other one is just because we're, we're dumb. When we face unjust circumstances and difficult situations, particularly to those that, that are, are really going to have some significant ramifications in our lives, in terms of maybe finances and security and those sorts of things that are that are precious to us, that are precious to all people. When we face something that, that, that challenges those, can I just say our first phone call should be to a friend in Christ, not the attorney. Okay, I'm going to quit meddling now. Praise team, you're going to come forward. Keep reading in Peter's letter, my brothers and sisters, to, uh, to bring this ancient but very precious word to life in our 
lives and in our culture, I think, takes some of these kinds of, of steps. Father, would you continue to guide our journey as we, as we move through this letter? Would you uh, guide our, our thoughts and our responses? Boy, mine included. Because I admit to sometimes feeling things strongly and expressing them in ways that aren't appropriate. And if there have been things that are said in this time together, may those just be forgotten that are worthless and the nuggets uh, brought home uh, to, uh, to be stored in our hearts where your spirit will, will work on them and bring them to life in us, your people. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.